Welcome to the Dublin City Libraries and Archives podcast. Our new season looks back at Dublin One City One Book 2018, where we celebrated the long gaze back and the female voice in Irish literature. This wonderful anthology of 30 short stories is edited by Sinead Gleeson. We'll be bringing you new episodes each Monday and Wednesday. While the events planned for this year's Dublin One City One Book are postponed, we encourage you to enjoy this year's choice Tatty by Christine Dwyer Hickey, available electronically on Libraries Ireland's Borrowbox app and in libraries and bookshops when they reopen and to listen back on this podcast. In the first of a two-part episode, Selected Shorts, we hear actors Rose Henderson, Susie Lamb, Katie O'Kelly and Geraldine Plunkett perform readings from The Long Gaze Back. Stories by Eilish Nigwivna, Leah Mills, Christine Dwyer Hickey and Anne Devlin. The second part would feature a discussion with the authors, chaired by Catherine Dunn, recorded at the New Theatre on Saturday the 7th of April 2018. Good afternoon everybody, my name is Catherine Dunn, I'll be chairing the discussion panel afterwards when the stories have all been read to us. So you have a treat in store, sit back and enjoy being read to, which might not have happened in some time for some reason. <laughs> so we're going to start off this afternoon listening to a reading of Ailish Nguivna's short story called The Coast of Wales. And this will be read by Rose Henderson and has been directed by Caroline Fitzgerald. Opposite the flower bed, which dazzles the eye with crimson primroses and tulips the precise pink of dentures, A woman in a yellow anorak is bent over a tap. As she fills her blue watering can, her small dog waits. He's a Yorkie, or a Scotty, one of those shaggy E dogs. (laughs) He's silent, which is good because dogs aren't allowed here. Patiently, he stares at the tap. It's attached to a slim concrete post and is almost invisible against the background of stone and milky, misty sky. That's why I never noticed it before. Now, this woman with the black dog illuminates it with that yellow anorak of hers, highlights it for me. There's something new to learn every time I come here. For instance, I found out that the potted plants I place carefully on the clay dry up very quickly even when it rains. You need to come and water them every few days. Some people know this, and they've rigged up clever permanent contraptions, containers like stone window boxes, which they place on the concrete plinth and fill with plants in season. It would be easier if you could sow something directly into the soil, but that's against regulations. The reason is that this is a lawn cemetery. That's another thing I've learnt. The term lawn cemetery. And what it means, which is that grass grows on the grass. (laughs) And that men from the county council cut this grass. They've been mowing regularly ever since spring got going, six weeks ago. These grass cutters also remove any unpermitted decorations, for example, teddy bears plastic angels, Santa Clauses, from the graves, and throw them into the big skip by the gate. They also throw away withered flowers. You have to keep a watch 
on the plants to make sure they don't decide to consign them to the skip before they're dead. All this cutting and throwing away, however, means the place is well kept. On sunny days, it can look almost nice, <laughs> at least after you get used to it. I brought water in a bottle in my rucksack, and now I find out there's no need to carry water all the way from home. Water is heavier than it looks when it comes dancing out of the tap, light as stars. <laughs> this is what the graveyard looks like. An enormous housing estate, bisected by a thoroughfare. You can drive on this, and some people do, but I think that's inappropriate. Like driving on a beach. Off this central artery are the cul-de-sacs, about 20 on each side. Hundreds of straight lines of graves arranged symmetrically like boxy houses with pocket handkerchief lawns in front of each one. True, there is a certain amount of variation in the headstones as there is in houses on estates, but as with them, diversity is limited by planning restrictions. The headstones must not be higher than four feet. And so they all measure four feet. Naturally, everyone goes for as much height as they can get. Apart from this, some choice is permitted, although all headstone <coughs> designs and descriptions have to be vetted by the authorities. They're obviously tolerant. There are some pretty unusual headstones around. You hesitate to use the word bad taste <laughs> in connection with death. Another thing I've learned. Don't be judgmental about trivial things. And everything is trivial by comparison with what's going on in this place. But I can't warm to the shiny slabs with gold inscriptions and smunk angels on top. The white marble is nicer, even when it comes with expressions of profound statements, sentiments in lines apparently plagiarised from country and western songs. <laughs> or the funny stories page of some ancient schoolboy magazine. His life, a beautiful memory. His absence, a silent grief. Take care of Tom, Lord, as he did us, with lots of love and little fuss. <laughs> My favourites are the simple stones, plain grey, which have become more common, I'm pleased to report, over the past four or five years. It's easy to date fashions in a graveyard. <laughs> That's what I ordered for you. The style called Boulder. The natural look that suits a man who wore tweed and spoke correct Irish, Welsh and Scots Gaelic. I thought it was a personal choice, but I've discovered that most of the poets and writers, teachers and academics in the graveyard are buried under similar stones. <laughs> There's only one unique monument in the entire place, a wide slab of pinkish granite, thin as a butterfly's wing. Only a name and date inscribed on it in tiny times New Roman. The architect who designed Belfield. <laughs> of course. <laughs> to tell the truth, I, I wouldn't mind one of those. 
a high modernist headstone that looks as if it were imported at great expense from Finland or some other crucible of understated good taste. <laughs> but, you see, you could copy it. And the next thing, Ikea would be supplying the same thing in flat pack and a fraction of the cost. <coughs> it's all over the place. I guess I'll stick with the, the country life look. Unlike you, I know precisely how and where I will be buried. Unless I'm destroyed in a plane crash. Or murdered. <laughs> and chopped up into little tiny bits and my body never found. <laughs> I'll be under a homespun boulder on Row C in the section called St Mark's, down near the wall of the Church of Ireland. I thought when I was shown the spot that it was pretty. Because it was in the shelter of the old church with its bell tower and stone walls. The newer section of the graveyard, St Elizabeth's, didn't appeal to me very much. <laughs> it's a huge flat field that stretches despondently to the Irish Sea. <laughs> the undertaker, who encouraged me to think very carefully before I made a decision, pointed out that as time went on, St Elizabeth's would look Less bleak. The trees will grow, he said in his mild and mildly ironic tone. He takes death in his stride and thinks in the longer term. <laughs> but how much time have I got? From St Mark's there's a fine view of the Dublin mountains. Today a rich, eggy yellow. The gorse. Easter egg time, almost everything in nature is yellow. Not only has it a fine view, always desirable in houses or graves, St Mark's always has the virtue of age, being in the oldest part of the graveyard, where unburnt corpses can no longer be buried. There's not enough room. For them, poor skeletons, no choice. It's St Elizabeth's, they'll have to grin and bear it, and wait for the trees to grow. But there's still place for little urns of ashes in the old section, just because not that many Dubliners choose cremation. And of those that do, many don't get a grave. Their ashes are scattered in some scenic spot where they used to go on their holidays, or kept at home on the mantelpiece. Some of yours are at home too. I'm planning to scatter them on a nice headland near the place where we went on holiday, on Anglesey, where almost everybody speaks Welsh. But I rather like having them in the house, so I'll probably hold on to some. That means your ashes will be in three different places. <laughs> There's no rule against it. That's the beauty of ashes. You could never dismember a body and bury bits in various places, <laughs> except in very exceptional circumstances, <laughs> like Daniel O'Connell's. <laughs> I would have thought such ideas unhealthy, even disgusting, and terrifying, before. Hmm. Life is for the living, was my motto. Not that I expressed it in one way or another. But now, the dead are always on my mind, and I'm quite an expert on graves and graveyards. I could set up an online advice <coughs> centre, and may do that when I get over your death. Quite a lot of plans for that time, for the time when I get over it. 
when my energy returns and I start out on a new life as a person who has lost her husband but has survived. A widow. To use that word, all widows I have met and they're all over the place. Can't stand. People tell me that you'd want to start a new life. You'd want me to start a new life to be happy. Suppose it's a safe bet. You wouldn't want me to be actively miserable. You didn't get a chance to express any preference one way or the other, but others step into the breach. You should get a dog. Aren't you lucky it all happened so quickly? A massage would make you feel so much better. <laughs> the sort of things we'd have a good laugh at between ourselves over dinner. I reckon we ate about 14,000 dinners together. And so had at least 14,000 good laughs. 28,000. <laughs> More. It would be so great to have just one more dinner so I could tell you all about all that's been happening. Relay all the comments, the sublime, the absurd, the in-between. Quite a long dinner we'd need to tell the whole story. They mean well. St Mark's is not really as nice as I first thought. The church and the ivy-coloured wall block the sun in the afternoon, so our grave is often in cold shade. Today, for once, I came in the morning, and the sun is shining on you. I take my plastic water bottle out of my rucksack and pour water on the purple flower, a sonetia, and the white, a chrysanthemum. It's not the kind of flower you liked, or I like, but it was the only thing in the flower shop that looked healthy enough to survive in this graveyard for any length of time. And it has lasted, and looks quite good here on the grave, which needs all the flowers it can get. The boulder hasn't come yet. They're waiting for a good block of granite. As if blocks of granite come rolling down the hill when they feel like it. <laughs> You'd think they'd have a regular supplier. In the meantime, all you have is a little wooden marker with your name on it and dates. It's been a great help to me, especially at the beginning when I couldn't remember where the grave was. It took me a while to remember to turn left at Mary Byrne's grave, which is next to that of Enrico Cafola, Professor of Music. Easier to remember than Mary Byrne. <laughs> Beloved wife, mom and nana. <laughs> the word granny never appears on headstones. <laughs> I never go astray now. There isn't enough water in the bottle. The flowers are alive but thirsty. The white petals of the chrysanthemum are turning to straw. The sonetia is such a strong regal purple, a deep dyed purple, that its thin blade like petals could never turn brown. But, but they're getting limp. I decide to walk back to the tap and get more water. It'll take about 10 minutes to go there and back. But I have plenty of time now. That's another thing. Before, I had no time for anything. 
Now time seems to stretch endlessly in front of me like the sea out there in front of the railway. But the sense of a wide expanse of ocean is an illusion. There is a coast that you can't see over the horizon. Wales. The land I love because it brought us such luck. After four years waiting, we conceived a child there on the first night of a holiday in Beaumaris. It's a mere 66 nautical miles away. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And it's closer than, say, Ballinasloe. As I go back towards the tap, I notice the woman I saw earlier, the woman in the yellow anorak. She's busy at a grave. No doubt she's a widow, like me. Like most of the graveyard visitors who spend their lives taking care of husbands and have no intention of stopping now, just because they're dead. So they keep coming to the graves to pull up the weeds, to water the flowers, to plant new things. The woman in the yellow anorak is touching the headstone with both hands and talking to it. As I pass, I hear what she's saying. Sandra came to dinner yesterday and we watched Fair City. I miss you so much, my dearest darling. The dog is nowhere to be seen. The tap. That's where the dog is, tied to the concrete post by his leash. He's a Scotty. I can see it now. I remember the difference. Black with that long, sceptical Scottish head. Hi, little dog. I say. Excuse me while I fill this empty ginger ale bottle with water. I turn on the tap and squeeze the mouth of the bottle so that it fits over the lip of the tap. This is not a good idea. Just then, a hearse comes through the gate, followed by two black limousines. After them, the straddle of ordinary cars. A few people stand at the corner paying their respects as the hearse passes and swings quietly round the corner, making for St Elizabeth's. I used to hate the sight of a hearse. My heart would sink if I met one in the road but I no longer fear them, now that I've met death face to face, tried to shoo it away and lost the battle. Now I can cast an indifferent eye on every hearse that passes by because I've driven behind yours. Just as the hearse turns around the corner, this thing happens. The plastic bottle dislodges from the tap and a strong gush of water splashes onto the dog. Startled by the sudden cold shower, he breaks free. He can't have been tied very tightly. And off he dashes in the direction of the woman in the yellow anorak. And he runs right under the second big limousine. The one which probably contains the more distant relatives who are nevertheless too important to come in their own car. <laughs> I see him. All the funeral followers on the sidelines see him. The only person who does not see him is the driver of the limousine. He's such a tiny dog, the size of a well-fed rat. Dogs aren't allowed in the graveyard. The driver isn't expecting one to run in front of him. 
How ghastly! First your husband, then your dog. <laughs> this had occurred to me in connection with dogs and cats, their mortality. If I get a dog, as so many people advise, it will die sometime. And by the time it dies, I will have grown to love it. Even though a dog is no substitute for a husband, I'd be bereaved all over again in a different way. An, an easier way. But bereavement is never easy. The hearse glides slowly along the road to St Elizabeth's. The first limousine turns the corner and follows it. The second limousine turns too. The driver still doesn't realise he's run over the widow's dog. But no. No! It's okay! The dog is okay! The car passed over him and just left him behind like a jellyfish on the beach when the tide goes out. <laughs> Alive, with no more than an expression of mild surprise on his narrow face. He scampers off over the graves towards the spot where the woman he loves, who has seen none of this, is busily engaged in a conversation with someone she loves but doesn't exist. <laughs> Animals don't know what we humans know. All the people standing by the side of the road, including me, laugh. Some more heartily than others. His lucky day, someone says. Yes, there's quite a bit of luck involved when it comes to the crunch in matters of life and death. A short pause. We consider this observation and savour the taste of profound relief, an exquisite taste. I turn off the tap. Then I kick the bottle and let the water spill out onto the bread bed of crimson primroses, tulips the exact colour of dentures. I decide not to return to our grave. It's pointless. Unless the brash senetia, the weary chrysanthemum, get some rain and manage to soak it up. Nothing I can do will keep them alive. The mourners shake themselves, remember why they're here, and start to process sedately along the track that leads to St Elizabeth's, the railway line and the Irish Sea. The haze has burnt off now and the water sparkles blue as silk close to land and a deep dark indigo like a firm line of ink on the horizon. You can't see Wales, but it's there all right. And now we'll have The Crossing, written by Leah Mills, read for us this afternoon by Susie Lamb, and again directed by Caroline Fitzgerald. The Crossing by Leah Mills. In the taxi on the way to their Cairo hotel, Max and Duncan point things out to each other. Women swathed in black, with plastic shopping bags on their heads, swaying long-legged camels with spiky eyelashes, donkey carts piled high with wicker baskets full of live chickens, rabbits, ducks, 
the carcass of a horse rotting on the riverbank. Nola says little. She feels just exactly like the open window of the car, with all that rich, warm air streaming through. So many impressions rush through her that she can hold on to none of them. Egypt. She can hardly believe this is her, on the holiday of a lifetime. There's fresh trouble brewing in the region, but they'd already paid for their tickets. And Max said, there's always trouble. They should take the chance in case it never comes again. Duncan is their youngest, on his Easter holidays from school. His older brothers are busy with their own lives, and Nola hadn't liked to leave him at a loose end for a whole week. Lately, he's begun that slow turn that teenagers make, like the earth in the middle of winter, arcing back to the sun. As he's got taller, feet spreading, skin thickening, voice sliding deeper into his belly, he's begun to contract away from her. She thought she might not have to go through this with him, He'd been an affectionate child, but no. His eyes have begun to slide away from hers in public, as if he hopes against hope that he won't have to acknowledge her as his parent. <laughs> he has a way of squinting when she says things, as if the sound of her voice hurts him. <laughs> but it was his idea to come with him on this holiday. As soon as he'd heard about it, he perked up. Egypt, can I come? She'd been so pleased, she persuaded Max to agree. The car stops at a checkpoint. Beside them, a legless man powers along the road on stumps. He pummels the ground with muscular fists to propel himself forwards, swinging and swivelling his torso along with surprising speed. As if he feels her stare, he turns to glare at her. His face is angry, determined, virile. She looks away, ashamed, although she's not sure of what. At the hotel, they drink cocktails in the roof garden and admire the slow descent of the sun, a glowing disc sinking through an orange sky Winged feluccas glide along the river below. On the far side, crowds of tall, blocky buildings are punctuated by graceful minarets. But the noise! Even this far up they can hear car horns, whistles, music, shouts. And then the call to prayer, followed by the swell of thousands of voices calling to Allah. Nola's men are perfectly at ease here. Duncan knows how to order what he wants. She feels out of place, oversized, overheated, over eager. She says please and thank you too often to people who bring them drinks and bowls of salty, bitter and roasted nuts. She's 45, which Everyone says is young these days, but there's no getting away from the fact that it's halfway to 90. <laughs> or that she's plagued by surges of blood-boiling heat, bouts of forgetfulness, sudden mood swings. 
Nights when hormonal storms sear through her and she has to move to the spare room for fear of disturbing Max. She's tortured by the idea that she's blown it. That somehow she failed to notice when her life was supposed to start. That she missed the vital moment when she was supposed to step up and claim it. It reminds her of an earlier holiday long ago, when the boys were small. They were late getting to the airport, and even though their flight hadn't left yet, the check-in people flat out refused to accept their suitcases and let them through. While Max argued, Nola held on tight to Duncan, a squirming toddler then, and watched their flight number climb the information screens until it was gone altogether. She'd been so young then, her life ahead of her. But she hadn't realised what that meant. Hucksters called to them from every angle in the bazaar the next day, wheedling and persuasive. Best prices here, no pressure. A display of flame-coloured cotton catches her eye. The boy at the stall turns hopeful eyes on her. She knows it's a mistake to stop. She'll have to buy something now. She fingers a caftan-like top, gathering courage for the bargaining everyone says is essential. The cotton glows, soft, somewhere between gold, crimson and orange. The boy lets her bargain him down a couple of pounds from his first price. Max comes over while she's putting her change away, exhilarated. She's done it! What did you get? She opens the bag to show him. He makes a face. Is it for Jean? Jean is Nola's older sister, but she works in a university and still dresses like a student. How much did you pay for it? When she tells him, he points to another stall where the starting prices are lower. Sorry, he says. She wanders away to a stall loaded with spices, yellow crystals of myrrh, sticks of cinnamon, whole vanilla beans. Why does she feel so crushed? The boy needs the money a lot more than she does, and there's not much difference in the price, the cost of a bottle of beer, maybe. Besides, she paid for more than the shirt. She bought a vision of herself bartering in a North African bazaar. A person who would want a colour that bold. A person who might even wear it. <coughs> She'd paid for the smile in the boy's eyes, the grace of his gesture when he put his palms together and bowed to her. You are welcome in Egypt, he'd said, as if he meant it. She reads out warnings from the guidebook in a taxi on their way to Giza and the pyramids. They should drink only water from sealed bottles, no ice except in the best hotels. If they buy drinks at street stalls or in coffee houses, they must use drinking straws. The glasses may be improperly washed. She shows them the packet of straws in her bag. A crowd of men gathers around the car before they're even out of it offering their services as guides, displaying trays of souvenirs. Beautiful children swarm around them, calling greetings. Max strikes a deal with a man called Ibrahim, who bats his rivals away like so many flies 
and leads them away up the hill. The pyramids are empty, their treasures scattered. But the massive blocks of stone are still there, and the hieroglyphs. Nola stares and stares, trying to take it all in. Ibrahim frets when she stands too close to an open shaft, urges her back to the path. At the bottom of the hill, they meet his brother, Yusuf, outside the perfumery. You are my guests, he says. Please to come in. Inside, a long, shaded room cooled by ceiling fans. Mirror-backed cabinets display a range of enchanting glass bottles and jars. A boy whose name Nola doesn't catch offers to show her the toilet. Clean, he says, if you wish to use. It's embarrassing, as if they've read the guidebooks too. <laughs> they sit on a rosewood bench with carved legs and patterned cushions. Yusuf talks about flowers, dabs samples of scent on the inside of her wrists. Black narcissus, amber, lotus flower. We use this for the wedding night, he says. If the girl wears this, the husband will not get out of bed for a month. <laughs> he invites them to smell a different scent. Red musk. I am a Muslim. I respect this. It is burned in our mosques. Also frankincense. The three kings, Duncan says. Yusuf smiles, nods. Yes, from Egypt. After all that, Nola can't bring herself to produce the straws from her bag when the boy comes back with glasses of red, ruby red hibiscus tea on a silver tray. Duncan nudges her, but it's just not in her to do it. She's thirsty. The tea is blood warm, sweet, refreshing. Back in the hotel, she takes out her purchases, several lovely bottles of different scents, that has to be a racket, Max says. I'd say they're not even brothers. A rip-off outfit. Nola disagrees. Look at the day we've had. The next day, they fly south along the Nile. The flight is full of local people carrying packages wrapped in brown paper and string. A few men in suits carry briefcases. As the plane banks lower, it swoops over a deep, velvety green sea of fields, under pink cliffs. Beyond the fields, the land is a dry, humped, brown crust. The desert! Even Max is excited. Lower and lower they fly, until Nola makes out the tops of trees, buildings, the road. She can see right down inside houses with no roofs. There's no glass in the window. There are no doors. A small, dark-skinned girl in a golden dress runs through a luscious, vivid field, her arms outstretched under the shadow of the plane. Armed guards are conspicuous outside the grounds of their hotel. Inside, women move around the pools in bikinis, while polite waiters in crisp, White Egyptian cotton pretend not to notice. 
Large, pink-skinned men sweat in the sun. Beyond the pool is the river, where felucas swoop dramatic sails. Cruise boats steam up and down, fat, pale slugs on the water. A woman as old as Nola's mother would be if she were still alive squats in front of an open fire all day long, shrouded in heavy veils, making stacks of flatbreads for the terrace cafe. Salam? Nola tries, self-conscious. The woman's head dips. Alaikum salam. They visit a hotel so famous that they have to pay to get in. <laughs> Max and Duncan have their drinks without ice, but Nola can't resist. <laughs> We're safe here, surely. Her iced Coke is delicious, so cold that water beads the outside of her glass. Their guide, a woman called Samira, collects them there, en route to the Valley of the Queens. She wears a headscarf, a long-sleeved cotton tunic, pale trousers ironed to a knife edge along her shins. Nola has the strongest feeling that she's been to Hatshepsut's temple before. It feels familiar. The wide, steep ascent to rows of pillars cut into a wall of rock. She must remember to tell Jean, who's taken a course in transpersonal experiences <laughs> and believes in reincarnation. She's surprised by disapproving looks directed at Samira from other tourists. She's sure she's right. It's not the Egyptian men who frown, but the Westerners, mostly the women. Samira catches her noticing, raises one perfect eyebrow. My headscarf offends them. Nola feels herself blush. It seems rude to ask. Does it bother you? Samira's shrug is eloquent. If somebody stops me from work, that bothers me. She walks through the tourists as though they don't exist. Cool, elegant, unruffled. She talks about the queens, their consorts, their enemies, their fabulous powers. The holiday has been such a success. Look at the way Duncan and Max are talking, pointing things out to each other. They ply Samira with questions. The looming stone sentinels give Nola the creeps, but the hieroglyphs are lovely, plain and reassuring. Samira talks about gold and jewels stolen, urns and caskets emptied, the bad luck that followed. Nola begins to feel Disorientated, she stops listening, desperate to get back to their room at the hotel, to draw the curtains, take off her clothes and slip in between cool sheets in the air-conditioned dark, to drink a whole bottle of clean, cool water without stopping. She stifles a groan when their car pulls up again in the artisan's valley, among ruins that don't look much different from the clay huts that people still live in. Inside, the walls are painted with lively scenes of people working, of everyday life, images of men and women, families, people at work, tilling fields. At last, things she can relate to. 
A guard hands her a strip of cardboard. What's this for? He smiles and waves his own strip in her direction, raising dust. She's to use it as a fan. The chambers get narrow, shallow and hotter as they go further down. The guard follows, stirring the dusty air with his piece of card. No trace of gold or jewels here. These people's offerings would have been more everyday and practical. <coughs> Leather sandals, maybe. A pestle or a bowl. Even the household items have been taken to fill the museums of the world. Nola's lungs begin to clog. She remembers where she is, in a grave. She makes an excuse, turns and stumbles back up into the light. The merciless sun beats down on her head. Sweat runs rivers down her back as she crosses the narrow sandy street, jostled by boys with big smiles saying hello, wanting mumia. She waits for the others in a scrap of shade beside a pan. A small brown lizard darts past her foot. Plain, ordinary, busy. It would fit right into the world of the artisans, much as she would herself. Jean would have swammed around Hatshepsut's temple and imagined it was hers. On holiday together in England last year, she'd raved about the comfort, the style, the size of the rooms in the stately homes they'd visited. The clothes the women would have worn, their jewels. Nola has always known that if she lived in a house like that, she'd most likely be the underhouse parlour maid, the one whose fate it was to be first up in the morning, to clean out the grates and lay fires for the household. No four-poster beds for her. She'd sleep on straw if she was lucky, under the kitchen table. She'd spend her mornings emptying chamber pots. She'd have little to leave behind for grave robbers. She twists the wedding ring on her finger, wondering how she would pay the ferryman. On the way back across the river, Samira says that the city was built on the east bank because that's where the sun rises. It's a place for the living. The tombs were built in the west, where the sun goes down, in the land of the dead. Only the workers lived there. Nola's head buzzes. She has a dazed impression that she's left herself behind, on the wrong bank. That night, she's skewered by cramps. Her temperature shoots through the roof. When she's not sprinting for the loo, she's hallucinating. The air wavers, stained with patches of colour that have survived thousands of years of sun and wind, like paint in the temples. She lies very still in the darkened room when Max and Duncan set off on their adventures the next morning. The relief of being alone is like a cool cloth laid on her burning face. She drifts in and out of a hallucinogenic sleep through dark tunnels into dusty tombs. Brightly coloured hieroglyphs press against her eyelids. Those birds, 
she thinks. They're simple grace. Until they come to life and swoop at her. A gold collar tightens around her neck. When she tries to tug it off, her fingers can't find it. She hears herself groan like someone else in the room. Her head throbs. The others are late. All of a sudden, she remembers news footage of a massacre a few years back, when desperate men poured from the desert into yesterday's temple, shooting, spilling fresh blood to the sand. That's where her sense of familiarity came from. How could they have been so stupid as to come here? A sudden image of Duncan's awkward knees makes her want to cry. He is still my baby. More than anything, she wants him to blunder through the door and grunt at her. When they do eventually come in, their voices hurt her head. She sends them off to dinner without her and passes the night in a fog, half awake. She can feel the illness ebb. For once, she doesn't envy Max his deep sleep his reassuring, low-level snore. Her strength comes back like a tide. She likes the quiet dark, the sense of a whole continent gathered around her, holding her up. She wakes full of energy and slips out of the room to watch the sunrise from the veranda. Colours flush through the garden, Birds on holiday, like her, from a colder world, call up the new day. She feels purged, open. When she comes back inside, the others are dressed, waiting for her. There's a mound of tissue paper on the bed. What's this? Duncan smiles, shy. We got you something. It was Duncan's idea, says Max. She unwraps a chunky bracelet of turquoise and beaten silver and slides it over her wrist, admires its effect on her creamy, freckled skin of her arm. They tell her about the bus tour she missed, the temple at Karnak, a stop at an upmarket souvenir shop. Yeah, the usual tat, Max says, but they had nice things too. The shopkeeper could have talked the hind legs of, off a Christian brother. <laughs> He'll change it if you want. It's not far away. No. She sends them ahead of her to breakfast and takes a luxurious, refreshing shower. She dresses in good linen trousers to live up to her new bracelet and the shirt she bought in the bazaar. It has long, loose sleeves and steep, uneven ends, not unlike the hanging corners of a tablecloth. A bit much, really, but colour, like a rising sun. She takes the river path to the main building of the hotel. A kingfisher swoops and darts beside her, skimming the surface of the water. The sun is a hot hand on her back. It's going to be another searing dry day, their last. They've more or less decided to spend it beside the pool. On their way into the lobby, she meets Samira coming out. Today's group cancelled at the last minute. What will you do? Samira spreads her elegant hands. 
see what the day will bring. Join us for breakfast. Samira glances towards reception, where disapproval is clear in the set of the senior clerk's jaw. Coffee, at least. As my guest, I insist. Nola has never spoken to anyone like this before. She's quoting some film or other. <laughs> and why not, if it serves its purpose? She takes Samira's arm and walks her into the restaurant. Max stands up and pulls out a chair for Samira. Nola's astonished when Duncan does the same for her. <laughs> Max and Duncan want the pool today, she tells Samira, but I don't really burn. What would you like to do instead? Explore the town, if you're free. The real town, where people live. It's ridiculous how shy she feels. I'd like to visit a proper coffee house, somewhere you might go with your friends, if you wouldn't mind. A bookshop with new Egyptian books. A cinema, anywhere with a bit of ordinary life in it. In the distance, she can see the pink cliffs of the western bank of the river. Busloads of tourists are preparing to go over there. They'll spend the day clambering around the tombs of long-dead kings and queens, the ruins of temples, exclaiming at the scale, the grandeur, the enduring beauty of the ruins. They'll long for shelter from the sun, and the unending clamour for money and attention, the pressure to buy souvenirs. She wouldn't have missed it for anything. But all that's behind her now. Today is another day. Thank you, Susie. And that was Susie Lamb reading The Crossing, a story by Leah Mills. Our next featured author of this afternoon is Christine Dwyer-Hickey and her story is called The Cat and the Mouse and it's going to be read for us now by Katie O'Kelly and this reading has been directed by Anthony Fox. She steps into the room at the back of the house, softly closes the door behind her and listens. She has sensed a dip in the light outside, the lull before rain. Since yesterday, it has been this way. A pause like a large intake of breath and then in a tricker, happy barrage against the glass roof and long windows, the rain. Her aunt in the kitchen, fidgeting with dishes. Her mother in the garden, mumbling to her phone. Her uncle upstairs, snapping French words into a dictaphone. She needs to hold these positions in her head to anticipate the slightest shift in sound or intent. Every other day she hoovers this room. At first, her mother and Aunt Babs used to move the furniture. As she got to know her way around, they moved it less and less. Now they guide her from the sidelines, in between talk about when they were London girls. Watch out for the sofa. Television coming up. Ah, ah, ashtray on the floor, on the floor. Ah, ah, ah. Her mother says this. 
as if she's a toddler who might pick up the ashtray and start eating butts out of it like sweeties. <laughs> the hoover beside her. She holds the cable lead in her right hand, while her left hand begins the excursion, skimming over these flaws that have lately become her landmarks. A patch of rough skin, the marks of old nail wounds, and behind the sofa, a small raised worm of air under the wallpaper that only she knows about. She still finds it an odd way to get around. Odd and maybe even perverse. As if she's forcing an intimacy between herself and the house, forever feeling it up, fondling its fabrics, touching, sniffing, testing. While the house just stands there and takes it. It would be so much easier if the cleaner did it. Madame Millet or Maya or something. It's that, it's there in her mother's anxious voice and in Babsy's chirpy encouragement. And it's there in the cleaner's foreign words, in which she recognises without quite knowing how, a promise to go over the room herself as soon as Lovely has finished bumbling around. <laughs> she has picked the wrong day. The minute she steps into the room, she could tell. Stale cigar smoke like a dirty gauze in her face, meaning the cigar smoker came back with Uncle Christoph last night after the golf club dinner. Already she knows the cigar smoker is a man who likes to use a room, reliving his game and acting out anecdotes. There will be extra ashtrays in unexpected places, glasses on the floor, more than one type of bottle, wine or that brandy stuff made out of apples. Sometimes they keep her awake till all hours, although she would never say. Not even when her mother nags her next day for lying in late. Lazy. Do you want to think you're lazy? That you won't even try? Her mother and Aunt Babs won't hear a sound. Their bedroom's upstairs, sealed with thick glass and caged in by long shutters. That side of the house faces the road. She remembers it as a road you might see on a tourist poster, long and flawlessly straight, trees like spears on each side all the way into La Vie. She's the only one to sleep downstairs. In a room Christophe had specially converted after the accident, bars all around the wall, like a ballet studio, he declared the first time he showed it to them. When he said that, she could feel her mother like a cat bristling beside her. Her mother says it ever so often. Thank him. I did. I do. Thank him again. Talk to him. You know how he likes to practice his English. <laughs> but there are only so many times she can say thank you. Merci. Merci. Mercy. <laughs> and besides, she finds herself turning shy in his company. The air that lurks around and difficult to navigate. When she came here as a child, she had no such problem. There was a cast iron statue of a cat on the roof of the house, another statue of a mouse just above it. She had almost passed out of joy the first time he pointed them out to her. Le chat et le souris sur le tout. He taught her the words in French, but told her about their adventures in his clumsy English. She would have loved to know if the cat and the mouse are still there, but can't seem to bring herself to ask. What is your age now? Uncle Christoph asks. Sixteen. And the last time since you came? I was thirteen. Ah. Three years and so many changes. 
Christoph is a quiet man. Snotty, her mother calls him. Snotty and permanently dissatisfied, like everyone else in this bloody place. It's how her mother has always referred to Normandy, this bloody place. <laughs> Once, when she was small, she'd overheard the two sisters talking on the terrace in the middle of the night. Through the bathroom window, the sound of frogs or maybe crickets, the clinking glass and Babsy's voice in the dark. Of course the people are down. It's still here, you see. Death on the air. Blood in the soil. Blood in the soil. So that's what her mother had meant. For the rest of that holiday, she hadn't been able to sleep until her mother climbed into the high double bed they had shared then. The idea of it. Death in every breath you took. Blood under the grass, the sand, the soil. Making everyone unhappy. The whole town. The whole of Normandy, probably. Uncle Christoph, most of all. But she knows now that Christoph is not always dissatisfied. In the cigar smoker's company, at least, he is happy. At the end of the first wall, her hand comes to a stop, turns and begins moving again, this time in slow, cautious arcs. Soon the sideboard will be coming up. Last week it stabbed her in the hip, the spot still tender to the touch. Everywhere, danger. Their old flat in London which would have been far easier to manage. Any of the old flats, in fact. The last place in Wembley, best of all. There, everything seemed little more than an arm's stretch away. A whole year they had stayed there. She'd begun to think of it as home. Spicy smells on the stairs. Giddy Indian music. Raps on the door when her mother went out in the evening, asking if she was all right. Ancient, honeyed voices. This house is too big. All that space she loved as a child, she's afraid of now. And the furniture has become her enemy. She remembers the rooms. A sun-kissed kitchen. Bases of pots glinting like big coins from a rack. The long sitting room. Le Salon, they called it. The same name as the hairdressers they'd once lived above in Ipswich. There was a square table in the centre of the hall. Tall white flowers in a vase that left a waft of piss on the air. In the evenings, the dining room table heavily laid. Napkins that spread out to the size of her skirt. It had been like staying in a small hotel. Everywhere a touch of formality except for the space beyond the back garden that Christophe had left, he said, to become its sauvage self. L'herbage, he called it. Her first port of call once all the cheek-kissing stuff was out of the way. She would run down the back garden path, through a small blue wooden gate, long grass lashing her bare legs and flicking her against her open palms. There, turning herself into a carousel, everything dipping and twirling around her, the neighbouring orchards, the distant glitter-grey sea, the vast beige beaches. Then, cutting to a stop and squaring herself like a windmill, she would wait for the blur to settle. And there it was, the first holiday view of the house. 
the clipped back garden, the curly iron furniture, the steep-hipped roof, and of course the catch reaching for but never quite catching the mouse. It was what she missed most of all during the sister's three years' silence. She tugs at the lead. The hoover, like an obedient dog, comes to her. She feels tired suddenly, the zip gone out of her plan. But to back out now would be to throw away all those small triumphs already popped up this morning. Last night she decided that this was how it should be, her first solo run. No watching eyes, no guiding voices. A surprise, she could later call it. A thank you of sorts for Aunt Babs for all her kindness. Like the farewell picture she used to draw for her when she was a child. They came by ferry and train in those days. Often they hitchhiked from Calais, telephoning Babs from the local station, pretending to have just stepped off the Paris-bound train. On the return journey, there was no need to pretend. There would always be a little something slipped into her mother's bag. Aunt Babs's car not yet out of earshot before her mother had the envelope whipped out and was slitting it open with her index finger. This time they came by aeroplane and taxi. Well, this is it then, her mother had sighed as the taxi pulled up. No turning back now. It hadn't occurred to her until that moment that this house would no longer be for holidays. This house was where she would learn how to be blind. What happened, my darling? Aunt Babs had asked her more than once and in more than one way. What happened that day? I don't remember, Aunt Babs. You don't remember anything? Not even getting into the car? Nothing. Not a thing. I told the police already. But I'm not the police, sweetheart, Emily. You can tell me. Did you know the driver then? Or did you get a lift with him? Just tell me this, were you hitchhiking? All right then, did the man give your mum any money? Can you remember that? I told you, I told the police, all blank, nothing. Later, her mother questioning her questions. Did she ask you anything? You know, about the accident. Never mentioned it. Not a word. Did you tell her anything? How could I tell her anything? I told you, I don't remember. A few days into the last holiday, the row had taken place. She had hardly known what it was all about, except that there had been a party the night before in Rouen and her mother hadn't come home. You can't do that sort of thing around here, Babs had said, and certainly not while staying in this house. The two sisters had stood, icy and pale, the kitchen table between them. They had called each other names. It had been difficult to know who was the accuser and who the accused. Tramp. I'm not a tramp. At least I'm not a gold digger. You're calling me a... You've some nerve, you bloody drunkard. Drunkard? How dare you call me a drunkard and you more nothing more than a glorified prostitute. He's my husband. Husband? He bought and paid for you and you probably cost less than a housekeeper. <laughs> at least I have a home. You can't even take care of your own child. Yes, but at least I have a child. More than you'll ever have in that walking corpse. Bitch! 
You're like a fucking bitch in heat, you are. Any man at all. Selfish, selfish, selfish. By then, she was already upstairs, pulling their clothes out of the deep-mouthed drawers and rolling them into their baggage. They had walked into a late afternoon. Down the long road with its sturdy shuttered houses and the scent of apples floating on sea air. Her mother quietly crying at intervals all the way back to London. Words have been spoken, she said, that could never in a million years be forgotten. But only three years gone by and all forgotten now. What happened? It's a terrible thing. But at least it has brought us together again, and Babs said the day they arrived. Both sisters sobbing. Sobbing, then laughing, and sobbing again. She steps out of her slippers, begins feeling for dirt with the sole of her foot. Her feet have become almost as important as her hands. In some cases, even more important. Because it's all about tasks now as they never tire telling her, learning them, developing them, honing them into skills. Hoovering for coordination, gardening for the senses, tasks and skills. These two words are always there in the background, snipping at each other like blades and the scissors. The word blind is no longer used, and le vague is a word she only hears from the French, the gardener, the cleaner, the old woman who works in the boulangerie, a peasant word, her Aunt Babs said when she's asked. A vulgar peasant word that should be ignored. But she has caught the word Lavoie on Christophe's conversations, and he is far from a peasant. She wanted to know, to have someone say it. Qu'est-ce que c'est une vague? she asked Madame Millet. Une vague est une vague. She put it another way. Une vague, c'est moi. C'est toi, ma chérie. C'est toi. En anglais, on dit blind. Ah, blind, Madame Le said. She pulls the lever of the hoover forward, locates the holes in the socket and coaxes the plug into place. Her foot probes its squat, smooth back, and then finding the, the control button, heals it. The hoover begins to sing. Head cocked, she listens for the subtle changes in its voice. The cackle of too much dust in its throat. The catch of a toothpick. The satiated whine that tells her it's full to the brim. The rain will outdo these sounds, she thinks. The rain will deafen this room. She wakes with the taint of apple brandy on her breath, and it comes back to her then, the bottle's short neck, the dry top of its cork as she released it, above all the impressive weight of it in her hands. She'd only wanted to move it out of the way, and then out of curiosity had opened it. The warm breath of Christmas, the slant of the alcohol, of course it had to be tasted. She'd gone at it like a saxophone player, bending to it, latching on with her mouth, then raising it up with both hands and walloping it back. The shock of it then, like something out to kill her. She saw it as a lizard-like creature, swift and hot and spiky, a sharp swishing tail and claws made of tiny, accurate flames. 
She'd had to hang her tongue out of her mouth to cool it down. It wasn't a drink at all. It was liquid fire. No wonder Christophe was dour if this was one of his pleasures. The attack subsided. Her breath returned. She'd hastily put the bottle back as she had found it, still shaken but wholly relieved to be shut of it. And then a few moments later, she'd gone back for more. It had made her feel better, that's all. The burning sensation quickly softened and everything had become lighter. Her spirits, her limbs, the tight ache that for months had been lodged in her stomach. And the worry, of course. The what next? Where next? Who next? And now here she was, lying in bed, raw throat and a whiff of nearby vomit. Her nose seeking it out. The pillow, the top sheet, the hem of the quilt. But in these things she can only find the coy lavender scent of Madame Millet's laundry. Fragments begin to appear, lengthening, widening, gaining substance. Her mother, the fight, finding the whoosh of vomit. She'd been trying to persuade the Hoover to return to the cupboard. A clacking, clattering racket, and then a sudden grip on her arm and the sensation of being dragged backwards, away from the cupboard, out of the hall, and one final shove into her room. Spitty whispers behind closed doors. What do you think you're doing? Are you? You are. My God, you're drunk. Drunk? I don't believe this. I just can't believe this. Her mother stepping back. Stepping in again. Walking around the house. Drunk at ten o'clock on a Saturday morning. Drunk and not even dressed. You can see right through that nighty. Right through it. Well, no. I can't, actually. <laughs> she had wanted to fight with her mother. Wanted to say all those things that she'd been keeping locked up in her head. Call her the name she'd been silently calling her ever since the accident. To destroy her mother with words. But she'd felt sick suddenly. A nudging sensation in her stomach like a hand groping for a way out of a tent. Behind the sick feeling, the vague satisfaction of knowing her mother couldn't shout, no matter how much she wanted to. Might I remind you that we are here under sufferance? Might I remind you that only for them we would be walking the streets? Is that what you want? Can I bring my hoover? Is that supposed to be funny? Her mother grabbing by, her, by the shoulders then, cigarette smoke still warm in her mouth, puffs of sour, angry breath, the leady smell of last night's sneaky vodka. What do you want me to do? What do you expect me to do? A ragdoll shake. A silent pause and then her mother gasping. You know something? I could fucking well kill you sometimes. You know something? I wish you fucking well would. The two of them then, caught in a net. Carefully, silently pulling at each other, tugging, slapping, thumping, choking on each other's sobs. After the brandy, she sleeps for hours. It's all she wants now. It's all her, her comfort. 
the way it drags her down and swallows her in, depositing her in a hinterland where anything might happen. When she finally wakes, the house is silent. She knows it late and that everyone has long since gone to bed. Yet there's a presence beside her. For a second she almost cries out like a little girl. I'm sorry, Mummy, I really am. But then an unknown hand comes and touches her arm, strokes her hair, lifts her. A spoon rests on her bottom lip, the taste of warm apple and cinnamon making her weep. Shh, shh, the voice says, ma petite, ma pauvre à vous. It's market day in early October when her mother leaves. There's no warning, no fuss over packing the night before, no goodbyes. Yet she knows when she leaves for the market with Babs that when she returns her mother will no longer be there. She wears sunglasses and links her aunt's arm through the town. And for a while she forgets that she can't actually see all the things Babs is describing. <coughs> in the park there is the tender sounds of old men playing booths. Aunt Babs takes her into a cafe and teaches her how to place the order. Du café, du coffre. Don't forget you, s'il vous plaît. Will I be speaking French in no time, she says then. When your mother comes at Christmas, she won't believe it. At Christmas. Oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. But your mum, well, she needs to get away for a while. It was too upsetting for her to say goodbye. But by Christmas... She won't be back, Babs. I know she won't. For a while there is only the sound of the cafe and the sound of Babs smoking her cigarette. Maybe you're better off with us, my darling, Babs says then. Uncle Christoph will do everything he can to help you, and I'm here for you. You can talk to me. Tell me anything you know. About the accident, you mean? No, but... It might do you no harm to talk about it. Why can't anyone believe me? I don't remember. I really don't remember. Her dreams are more often in French now, and the rented flats of the past have all but disappeared. Old classrooms have melted into the dark, as well as the toys and the friends she had sometimes had along the way. Only faces have remained. Never ageing, never changing, looking just as they did the last time she saw them. Even if she can't always remember who owns which one, or the part that they have played in her life. What she does remember is the pure light of an English winter. The dark green of passing fields, and the ditches fudged with brown ice. Bare, ink-black trees. A large tawny bird overhead. The roll and sway of the road, slate grey, stitched white up the middle. The bird again, stalled mid-air, eyeballing some small life in a field below. She was going to point it out. In fact, she had lifted her hand to do so. But in the front of the car, her mother and the man were preoccupied. Her mother's blonde hair bunned on top of the fur coat she had bought the week before in a second-hand shop. The rind of the man's neck over a navy velvety collar, 
his voice refined and a little worried. Behind the voices, a Christmas choir on a low-set radio. And that peculiar sense of peace that had suddenly come over her. Peculiar because just a moment before, her gullet had been twisted with silent rage at her mother and this posh-voiced, velvet-coloured man. She'd been holding a riding hat she found on the floor. A hollow interior lined with red satin. The name of a girl embroidered on a tag. She had been about to ask, her voice cheeky and prepared to spoil something. Who owns this? Your wife, is it? Your daughter? Up front, the words getting tighter, interrupting each other. Her mother's voice thinning to a screech. His weighted but determined. She still can't quite find the words, nor does she want to. Only the colours interest her now, the shapes that contained them, painting them over and over in her head in an effort to hold on to them. Sunlight squirting through trees, harsh yellow sunlight cat clawing her eyes. She would have closed them, but she wanted to see what the bird would do next. The sound of the indicator clicking and the engine stalling on the junction, jolting every couple of seconds like a nervous child waiting to jump into the turn of a skipping room. Out on the main road, a glinting river of multicoloured steel, car after car after car. Through the window, green fields, Black trees, white ice, a tilt of Auburn, mid-air. Thank you very much. That was Katie O'Kelly reading The Cat and the Mouse, the short story by Christine dwyer -Mickey. And our final featured author for this afternoon is Anne Devlin. And Anne's story, Winter Journey, The Apparitions, will be read for us now by <coughs> Geraldine Plunkett. And this reading is also directed by Anthony Fox. One afternoon in the autumn of 2003, she would walk into a cavernous public house in Ealing and sit down. I worked here one summer in 69. A regular was waiting. He said he remembered her. He remembered both of them, the young Irish girls behind the bar. She's disbelieving of him. A regular for 34 years? You were stout, he said. The other one was thin and nervy, red all the time. He could hardly know what grief drove her to that place. You went home to go to college. I did. Would you not want to go back? My sister-in-law wouldn't let me, he says. What's it got to do with your sister-in-law? She says, I've no claim on the house. Where is back? Galway. He asks her what she's done since that time. I went to college, got married, and then I went to Europe. I've been traveling. Any children? One, away to university. Empty nest. I hadn't thought of it. Yourself? Two, and grandchildren now. Have you always lived here? I have. What brings you here? She doesn't say economic eviction because by his lights 
She's lived the high life. I just moved into a flat down the road. They talk about many things, books mostly. He's a great reader. He mentions one particular story about an alcoholic marriage. Now, why did he pick that, she thinks? She gets up to go, but he says, I'll walk out with you to the bus stop. They part by the red brick wall of the retirement home, one of the many in the neighbourhood. He says, call in again to the pub, I go on pension day. She says, of course she will. Strange to come back to the suburb of the Great West Road, to the exact spot where she changed a tyre on the way to Germany in the winter of 76. She knows what she's doing, is rewinding the days, growing back to catch herself on. She knows that love was lost because the person who made the journey was the other one, a part of herself, and she didn't wholly exist then. If she could just gather up the traces of the old route, she might gather in the feelings that existed then, because she knows that she cannot go on feeling nothing at all for the person she lives with. When Beatrice comes back from the pub, she sits down in the dark flat and waits for him. He comes in, expecting her to have left. She was running and running and couldn't find the door until she ran right into the room with him. I've never been to Basel, Dag says, when she starts to talk about the winter in 76. I walked out in a relationship. I walked across the room to a table with two German women and asked them if they'd help me to leave the man I was with. He followed me over and said I was having a breakdown. One of them was called Renate. I can still see her face. Perhaps it's your breakdown she's having. Turned out they were lesbians. They lent me the money to get home. Dad says nothing, so she prompts him. What about you? You promised to tell me about Klaus. Suicide. We met at university. He was studying law, but he wanted to become an actor. He turned out to be very good. He was the son of a Protestant priest. We would say clergyman, she corrects. He came to Strasbourg. We shared a flat together until we were kicked out. Oh, why were you kicked out? It was meant to be a temporary arrangement. And then we went to Ireland. In Dublin, we did Pinter. And one night, at the interval, I tore into him about his performance, and he walked out. He walked right out of the theatre and disappeared. It was the caretaker. I went back to Germany to run a theatre. What happened in Dublin? I just told him he disappeared, and five years passed. You went to Westphalia, was it? Then I'd heard he moved to the area, and I came under great pressure to contact him, but I never did. He wasn't reliable. But why, why did you tear into him in the rehearsal, at the, at the interval? Because he got into bed ten pages before he should have. <laughs> and he had to get out again. <laughs> he must have stayed in the region for as long as I was there, and when I moved to Hamburg, the next thing I knew he was dead. He killed himself. Perhaps I should have called him. Didn't that happen to you? My cousin, Vera, oh Jesus, yeah. I was irritated by her. I, I was 24 and very hard-nosed, a Marxist, and she was this floaty woman of 29 coming late to university, and then she falls in love or gets involved with the most aggressive man in the university. <coughs> she had a wedding, but nobody wanted to go. 
But I go, in fact, I give her lunch. My partner takes to his bed with backache. There were about six of us, and the tension was, well, you could have cut it with a knife. Three months after the wedding, she turns up at my door. We lived five miles from the nearest town, and no public transport on Sunday. There was no traffic past the house. How did you get here? I walked, she says, and her face, there she was, and no one had told her. Told her what? That his previous girlfriend had walked round with a black eye, saying he'd hit her. She got it first and moved away. Ken went after every single female in my ear without success. We laughed at him behind his back. He said Vera was boring. And she came to me because she said he admired me. The very same day we found her a room with a professor of Old English whose family were very kind. My cousin was from the Ardoyne, but she thought she was Anna Karenina. <laughs> That's literature for you. <laughs> Later, she got a job teaching in West London. About 18 months after she moved, she rang me. She said she still loved him and wanted to go back. She found London very fast and it frightened her. She wanted to come home. She'd spoken to him and he said he hadn't found anyone else. That was when I told her. Oh, grow up. Of course he has someone else. He always has someone else. There's this lynx-eyed woman on the go since the day you got married. There was a strange, dry squeaking on the phone, as if a door needed lubrication. Mm -hmm. Then the line went dead. And I realised I was listening to a heart breaking. Two years later, we were packing up to go to Germany. University communities are the same the world over, from Japan to Sweden, you find the same people. We gave a farewell party. The chaplain turned up. He'd had a phone call. Vera had killed herself. Did your partner approve of you moving her away from her husband? Well, yes, yes. But it was the phone call I regret. I actually crushed her hope. I've never spoken about Klaus before, Dad says. And I've told no one about the phone call from Vera. The flat Vera lived in was around here, in one of those streets near the Abbey. She's led me a long way. Don't tell me you believe in ghosts. She wants to tell him about the apparitions on the road to the ferry when she first left. Vera was there like softly falling snow, adding up to something and then dissolving. A snow woman. She believed she had seen her at the far end of a hotel reception in Venice, answering to her name, picking up the key to a man's room. It's the first real conversation they've had. Dad had loved Klaus. She had let her cousin die feeling unloved. She had to live with that. They were beginning to talk to each other. Did you ever see those women again? She nods. Renate and Dita. They were music students who paid their fees by busking for the tourists. They said I could tag along. I stayed with them for 10 months. They were headed that summer for Italy. Late September, after five weeks moving through the hill towns, playing music and mining tales for the villagers, we ended up in Venice. Oh, you should have seen me. I was nut brown, all flowing hair and scar. 
arms. And when I looked at myself in the mirrored shop fronts, I burst out laughing. I escaped myself. I had the face I wanted at last. I was beginning to add Italian to German, the they, which was the name I took. We called ourselves the people of the marionette. I don't sing or play an instrument, so they put a lantern in my hand, which is how I came to be leading a crowd up to the piazza. <laughs> After Dita and her silver flute, up to the piazza where we were holding our concert. It's a combination of classical and folk. She has a peculiar coat, a rhombus of different colours. I'm dressed in a bird cloak of uh, I'm dressed in a bird cloak with a hard half mask. I gather up the coins. We make a lot of money in Venice. On the last night, a man stepped into a photo I was taking, and I knew him. He was my ex-partner. I did something I can't explain. I said hi. He smiles and moves on through the crowd and disappears into the hotel at the edge of the piazza. The next morning, <clears throat> I persuade Dieter to go with me to his hotel. I have to know if he recognised me. We are exotic and tolerated as we trail across the pink and grey marble lobby. No one pays us any regard. And I go to the desk and I ask if I might call him on the house phone. I forget for a moment which language I'm in and they speak to me in fluent German. What name? A voice asks. I say his name again. At the same time, a woman at the far end of the reception deck says my name and is handed a key to his room. Some people start journeys with a broken heart. Dove, don't go to his room, okay? Dita says. The receptionist has dialed the number and handed me the phone, and then she disappears. The lobbies enter. Dita waits at a distance. Hi, last night I took your photograph. Hello, Beatrice. He dispenses with my advantage. I sit down and wait for him. Dita has left at my urging, and she's not happy. He comes towards with me, and he sighs. He doesn't like anything about me. I am really without funds, and I know this was the root of his disaffection with me. He begins a verbal assault about my failure to earn my living, drive a car, and function in the real world. But I'm learning a language here. This sets him off again, and he complains about my desire to be a perpetual student. We walk between the pillars, him and me. We're shouting and weeping, and the locals are giving us a wide berth. I can't remember anything we say, but it is awful. In the portico cafe in an alley in Venice, he unzips his face and cries. And I do the same. Basta! Dita is suddenly walking towards me. She takes my arm and walks me out of there. I go because I'm sure I'll be able to come back tomorrow and finish shouting at him. <laughs> but the next day he's gone and I go to the airline's office and try to book a flight home. An official doing the credit card checking looks at me. My face is very swollen. It's not the face I want anymore. And my request is refused. Fifty pounds is all you can have. He says it very respectfully. Dita lends me the rest. So who went to his room? This story isn't over, she cautions. 
I am seated on the plane next to a woman who unpacks her duty-free goods onto the table as if she was setting up shop. She begins to speak to me very quietly. She says she's Hungarian. I'm forced to turn my attention away from the window in order to hear what she's saying, so I miss my last glimpse of the lagoon. I find in scent I have in my sights a taunting array of goods I can no longer afford. A scarf I have absently lingered over in duty-free is lying on the table in cellophane under an opened packet of Lucky Strike next to 200 cigarettes of the kind I like to smoke. And also my brand of French perfume. She starts talking to me about the Hungarian rising in 56 and her own participation in it. She's launched into the middle of a political history without any small talk or preliminaries. <laughs> I've been so far away all summer that I, I'm struggling when she gets back to denouncing communist societies for the lack of freedom to travel. So I interrupt and I say, you know, you only have the freedom to travel if you have the money to travel. The woman looks at me and smiles. Good argument. Now convince me of the problems of capitalism which you so despise. Huh. I'm bewildered. I'm pretty sure I've never spoken to this woman before, so I cannot find out when I introduced her to my thoughts on the matter. The events of the last few days have come between me and my desire to speak. Suddenly I change my mind. You know, I think 56 was a tragedy. No one wanted it to happen, neither the Soviets nor the Americans. Wasn't it sparked by a bunch of right-wing Catholics who attacked the CP headquarters and hung some party workers? She's so angry, she gets out of her seat and moves across the aisle. And when she walked through passport control in front of me, a bell rang out as if a boxing match had ended. I began to wonder how I knew all this stuff. The hard-nosed Marxist at university, he suggests. It was something I read. And the woman at the hotel reception in Venice? His wife. No, she didn't believe in ghosts. But visitations from an awareness so vast it had to be expressed. A thought so insistent it materialised. It was the pre-Lent carnival that triggered it, she says, in 1976. It's called fashion, he corrects. Right. Adults dressed up as bears and birds, accompanied by town, toy, townish bands. My partner didn't like anything about it. The truth is, he didn't like me anymore. And he felt guilty, but lacked the courage to tell me. She says this pointedly, waiting for Dad to respond. Still, he says nothing. She knows she's going home for good this time, because she has been here before, twice. Within weeks she goes home, then Dad comes with her, but it isn't home for him. He's with her until one evening, standing in a car park in the rain, when he begins to throw coins into the air with both hands. He does it twice, and with such an odd expression, tracing the trajectory as they fly and then fall. It was what her infant son looked like when he discovered that snowflakes, when you threw them from a box into the air, rose before they fell. The child stood in a blizzard of flakes. It's a waste, Dagmar shouted. No, it's abundance, she insisted. 
She gets down in the rain in the dark to collect the fallen coins she needs for the meter. He marches off towards the painted gable. Dad, she calls after him. He's not coming back, the voice beside her, which is spoken as that of a young man who looks like her son. He has appeared with a map. He's not wearing a coat and the temperature is dropping. They both stare after her departing husband. Dad, the stranger suddenly shouts. Dagmar stops, turns and glimpses the configuration. He's looking into the past. He sees mother and son united against him 10 years earlier, the beginning of his decline. He sighs deeply and walks back to face the music. He takes the map and directs the lad to a hotel nearby. The apparitions, she marvelled, with their ability to speak out of the silence, had not abandoned her. They travel onto the N17 to a house at the edge of the woods in the dying days of the year. She suddenly became aware of a 12-year-old standing on a tabletop, glancing into the mirror above the fireplace in the Old Park Avenue in 1963. She has been dressed in a cloak of leaves for a pantomime in St Mary's Hall. The dressmaker, Auntie Maud, Vera's mother, is famed for her Mother of the Bride outfits and costumes for the Opera House. Father, mother, husband, still in turn from the last campaign, her aunt sews and remakes the days. Twelve-year-old Beatrice stands on the tabletop, looks in the mirror and sees the bird just as she is captured by the new music on the TV, with love from me to you. She sees that she is me and you are in the mirror. When she woke later, her attention was caught by late afternoon light outside a lattice window high up on the wall of the room, luminous with unfallen snow. It backlit the bare, irregular branches that cleave to the house, while the regular grid of the diamond lattice made a map of roots that held her long enough to contemplate the irregular beauty below. reading Anne Devlin's short story. I would like to express my appreciation for all of our readers this afternoon, Rose Henderson, Susie Lamb, Katie O'Reilly, and Geraldine Plunkett. I think they're really Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitylibraries.ie, where you can sign up to our newsletter, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Our theme tune is Dream of the Forest by Articom. If you're interested in podcasts, why not check out the Dublin Festival of History podcast, which features recordings from the free annual event and the new City of Books podcast with Martina Devlin, the podcast for people who believe stories matter and that you can never have too many books.